Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Professor Emma Aston joins the show again. On July 1st, 2021, Professor Aston joined the show and we had a conversation that explored what scholars know about centaurs in Greek mythology. Today, we're going to speak about Thessaly appearing in Greek mythology. Emma Aston is a professor in the Department of Classics at the University of Reading, based in the UK. She's author of the monograph, Mixanthropoi, Animal-Human Hybrid Deities in Greek Religion. And that was published as a supplement to the Kurnos Journal. And she's also in the midst of completing a book on ancient Thessaly, which will be published by Liverpool University Press. And Professor Aston joins the show today from the UK. Welcome back on the show, Emma. Hi, Andrew. Great to be joining you again. It's good to connect with you, as always, Emma. So in antiquity, so in the context of antiquity, what is Thessaly? Ah, thanks, Andrew. Yes, that's a good opening question, because um, actually Thessaly is a region that um, not um, everybody would be able to locate securely on a map. So it's um, excellent that you gave me an opportunity to issue a reminder. So Thessaly is a region of Greece um, north of um, the river Sperchios um, in central Greece, north of Thermopylae, which is famous from the Battle of Thermopylae, of course, but south um, from um, Mount Olympus, south from ancient Macedonia, and it's a, a large uh, area of rich and fertile plains surrounded by hills. It has, has the river Peneos flowing through it, connecting a lot of its communities, and the tributaries of that river also act to connect communities together. So it's a, a geographical entity, but it's also the homeland of the Thessaloi, a, a people, an ethnos, who uh, considered themselves as a, an ethnos, a, a, a people of a tribal group um, in the ancient world. So I guess that's the best potted definition of Thessaly that I can, I can provide. Thank you, Emma. And we're going to obviously spend the vast majority of the conversation today on Thessaly showing up in different ways in Greek mythology. But I want to ask about your research because you're completing a, pro a book soon on ancient Thessaly. What is it about this topic? And you've researched other topics his historically. So what is it about this Thessaly that um, you made the decision that you would spend quite a bit of time in, in researching and producing scholarly work on? Oh, well, I guess there are, there are two parts to the answer to that question, really. There's the, the sort of more um, instinctive or emotional reply, and then there's the rational intellectual reply. Um, on the sort of instinctive side first, I don't know quite why I've always been drawn to the sort of northern edge of, the, of, of, of Greece. Um, I've always liked Thessaly as a community which seemed to challenge a lot of our assumptions and preconceptions about how ancient societies are organized and run. In many ways, it provides a different model for social and political organization. And I've always liked that sense of a sort of fresh, new, um, not particularly thoroughly explored part of the Greek world, somewhere where there's still a lot of kind of mystery and, and obscurity and the unknown and lots to discover. Um, on the more rational side, um, I, I think that Thessaly does actually allow us to ask lots of interesting questions about where we think 
um, for example, where we think the centre and the periphery of Greece really are, because um, if we look at a map of Greece, we might imagine that Thessaly is kind of hanging off the northern edge, is barely clinging on to Greece and Greekness, but actually, if we look at early Greek mythology, early Greek epic, uh, southern Thessaly is um, the homeland of the original Hellenes, the original Hellenes or, or Greeks. It's the location of the original Hellas. So we might actually see it as a very central uh, region in the, the narrative of, of what it was to be Greek and be part of Greece in the ancient world. So it's a, it's a region that poses some really interesting questions with big implications for how we actually think of Greece as an entity and where its limits and centre really lie. Have you been enjoying the research? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm I'm in a very uh, fortunate position because I've um, had a lot of research leave uh, thanks to my my generous institution over the last academic year. So I've been able to really get on with finishing the book off, and and also I I've been spared a lot of the difficulties of um, maintaining a full teaching load during COVID conditions. So I, I'm feeling um, very lucky and a little bit, a little bit guilty, perhaps a sort of survivor's guilt. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, I'm, mind you, I'm, I'm glad to be bringing the project to, to its, its close now. I think it's something that's been a real e-day fix, a real sort of obsession with me for so long. It's um, time to try to forge it into something that can actually be published and read by other people rather than just obsessed about by me. Okay, so what's the earliest known attestation that you're aware of, Emma, of Thessaly, so of a myth referenced, referencing Thessaly? Oh, so great question. Uh, not an easy one to answer because it depends on whether um, what you're looking for is an explicit mention of the relevant ethnics, the Salian, at Thessaly, the, the, the names of the, the people and the, and the place. If you are, then you have, to, um, you have to wait for a very short fragmentary mention in the poetry of Alcman, uh, the Spartan poet in the 7th century BC. You don't find, you famously don't find, any mention of Thessaly or the Thessalians in those terms in Homer. Um, Thessaly itself, as, as we know, it is very important in Homer. It's the homeland of Achilles, for one thing, Asclepios' sons, lots of other significant um, mythological figures, and I'm sure we'll go on to talk about that in a moment. But at no point does the poet of the Iliad, or for that matter, the poet of the Odyssey, um, actually label Thessaly, Thessaly. And that has generated a really interesting discussion about what that absence of um, names actually means. Does it mean that um, when the Iliad was composed, Thessaly was not called Thessaly? Uh, or does it mean that that's just not the poet's priority to talk about it in those terms for one reason or another? I, I belong in the category of, of scholars who think that um, when the Iliad was composed, that the, the, the name Thessalois, the Thessalians, was absolutely in use, and I believe it was used to designate the inhabitants of the entire region of Thessaly as we know it, pretty much as we know it, but that the poet avoided um, using that name because it would have involved a sort of chronological anachronism, because in, in the 
the myth time that the Iliad is describing, Thessaly has not been named Thessaly yet because the eponymous hero Thessalos and his sons have not yet gone there. Strictly speaking, his sons Phaedipos and Antiphos have not yet traveled to Thessaly to rename the region after their father. So I think Homer is just avoiding breaking the fabric of, of myth time by calling Thessaly Thessaly at a time when it wasn't yet in the ancient imagination, if that makes any sense. Um, but then really we, we start finding the names Thessaly and the Thessalians um, frequently, routinely and unthinkingly used from the sort of end of the, well, at the beginning of the fifth century really in, in the prose historiography of the fifth century, uh, Thessaly, named Thessaly has become a, a perfectly standard way of referring to the region, whereas in, in, the, in the verse epic of the archaic period, for one reason or another, it's just not, um, not the poetic priority to name it in that way. Interesting points, Emma. And it does seem logical if someone was trying to avoid a, uh, an, uh, an instance of being an anachronistic uh, when, when writing that, that logically seems like that could be plausible. So can you cover then, you said 5th century, it starts to show up as Thessaly. So earlier than that point, what are the main, what is the main nomenclature uh, around this region that we're speaking about today that shows up in, in literature in some, some way? Well, it really depends on the work, and it depends on the on the poetic context. In um, in Homer, in the Iliad, um, Thessaly is is chopped up into uh, a large number of different um, kingdoms, fiefdoms, which supply contingents for the expedition against Troy. So the the um, crucial text for that is the catalogue of ships in book two of the Iliad, where we have this long list of the different Greek contingents traveling to um, Troy to take part in the expedition in, in the campaign against Troy. And we have a sizable contingent of what we see as Thessalians, but they're not called Thessalians. They're designated by um, their sort of sub-regional identities, of, of which I suppose the most famous is the, uh, the, the cluster of communities commanded by Achilles including the Hellenes and the Myrmidons. Um, so, yeah, so the Iliad chops up Thessaly into military contingents in effect um, and ethnic groups. Um, then another, another poem worth mentioning uh, in this regard is the probably early 6th century catalogue of women or Ehoiai, which is... Um, was attributed in antiquity to the poet Hesiod, but is generally agreed not to be by the same poet as the as the Theogony and the Works and Days. And the, the catalogue of women um, deals with the heroic genealogies descended from various um, pairings between gods and heroines across the Greek world. And um, Thessaly is really, in that poem, the cradle of a particularly important set of heroic lineages um, uh, descended from the hero Iolos, son of Helen, um, obviously the eponymous hero of the Greeks. Um, but again, Thessaly is not mentioned as Thessaly. Instead, what we have is that the major settlements of Thessaly um, 
in the archaic, well, <laughs> the, the, the settlements in Thessaly, which were sort of glamorous and important in mythology in the archaic period, such as Ferai and Yolkos, supply some of these really important family trees, um, which then spread out like the roots of a tree across the Greek world because heroes move, they leave Thessaly, they, they go to other places or their offspring move to other places. So there's a lot of migration, a sort of diaspora away from Thessaly. Um, so the sort of ramifications of Thessalian mythology are really wide and uh, form this sort of network of connections across the Greek world, but at no point does the poet of the Ehoiai catalogue of women actually call Thessaly Thessaly. So we're back in, in the same picture that we get with the Iliad of a Thessaly that's sort of chopped up according to different clans, families, micro-communities, subgroups, etc., etc. So a very consistent picture across archaic epics, which those two, those two examples illustrate. Is there is there another one that um, before the fifth century that is in the records that you want to mention as a a writer that that scholars are confident that the given work can be attributed to? Well, I suppose it's always good to try and fit in a mention of a a much maligned um, piece of verse called the Shield of Heracles or the Aspis. The Aspis is its Greek name, which some people use. Um, as I as I'm aware, this is dated to roughly the same sort of period of composition as the Catalogue of Women, so early sixth century, and it deals with a um, <laughs> a mighty battle between the hero Heracles and a Thessalian mythological figure called Kuknos or Kiknos, who is the son of Ares. And the reason it tends to get somewhat slighted is that it is arguably, although we have to think very very carefully about such judgments. It's arguably a really terrible piece of poetry. Um, it's sort of clunky, inelegant, peculiar. It's got some really weird Gothic touches. So it's tended to be kind of pushed out of the mainstream of kind of literary appreciation by classicists. I don't think, I think there's some good reasons for not doing that actually, but it, it does um, involve um, a, a big uh, episode in the career of the hero Heracles actually set in Thessaly. The battle against uh, Kiknos takes place in Thessaly. So it's the other, it's the other piece of, myth of um, early epic which, um, which involves Thessaly and has, in this case, a Thessalian mise-en-scene and a, a, a Thessalian antagonist. Um, although the ways in which the, the poem has been interpreted as, as a piece of anti-Thessalian propaganda on the basis that Kiknos is a Thessalian villain, I think is very problematic, actually. I think that we have to um, uh, avoid um, rather sort of one-sided, simplistic political readings of, of myth, which we're especially prone to do when we think that the aesthetic properties, the literary properties of a, of a particular work are rather unsatisfactory. So we see them in terms of political propaganda instead, because we're not, we're not satisfied with them as works of, of literature. And I actually think that that does the aspects a bit of a disservice, but it's the other, it's the only other sort of really substantial piece of archaic um, verse in which, in which Thessaly has a, has a major role. So that's definitely worth mentioning, yes. Does any deities in Greek mythology live in Thessaly? Well, that's a, that's a question one has to unpack a little bit, because of course, if we're thinking about where the cults of deities reside, then, then we all know that all regions across 
the Greek world have their own sort of local variants of well-known deities. So of course, um, of course, Thessaly is the usual complicated, nuanced patchwork of uh, local manifestations of, of, of deities. And um, a, a shout out here, I think, is 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 warranted to Maria Mealy's 2015 um, book, uh, Religion and Society in Ancient Thessaly, which uh, whose whose great achievement is to analyze the the different registers of of religion in Thessaly from the the kind of household level up to the polis level and then the sort of um, uh, suprapolis level and the regional level um, so if we think about where deities are being worshipped then of course uh, we find the usual usual kind of highly localized uh, range um, we, we also find some deities that turn up in Thessaly and not elsewhere, or at any rate are very, very strongly associated with Thessaly. So the, the famous example is Enodia, who seems to have quite a lot in common with the goddess Hecate, but has a distinctly Thessalian flavor, and she's particularly associated with the Thessalian um, polis ferai. Um, as to where the gods actually are thought to reside in terms of their, <laughs> their daily lives, well, of course, Mount Olympus itself is just north of Thessaly. It's across the, the river um, Peneos, and it's, it's across the Peribian Highlands, which separate Thessaly from, from Macedonia. Um, so if you are in the north of Thessaly, um, you, you can just about see the home of the gods in that distance. Um, of course, the, the Greeks have a really complicated way of envisaging where the gods actually spend their time. They're sort of on Olympus, they're sort of in their various sanctuaries, they're sort of on the move between the two. But I think it's not, it's not coincidental that, um, that Thessaly is thought of as a place where um, you know, where the gods and goddesses actually might spend their time because it has this slightly otherworldly quality, which I think we touched on last time we spoke, Andrew, because it, we talked about the way in which centaurs are imagined as living in Thessaly because Thessaly is sufficiently sort of remote and perhaps a little bit peculiar in the Greek imagination, and perhaps the same applies to Thessaly as home of the gods as well. Um, it might, might be worth just adding to that that there are other stories in which the gods spend significant periods of time in Thessaly. For example, we have the famous myth in which Apollo has to serve um, a sort of period as a servant, a slave of the Pharaian ruler Admetus. And this leads to, of course, the famous story in the play by Euripides, in Euripides' Alcestis, where in gratitude to his former employer Admetus, Apollo um, involves himself um, in the uh, domestic lives of um, Admetus and Alcestis. Um, so, so perhaps we do overall have this sense that for other Greeks, Thessaly might be a place where humans and gods could interact with a greater degree of sort of intimacy and familiarity than, than in a lot of places. Okay, so in Greek mythology, so Mount Olympus, is not technically in Thessaly proper, but it can be seen from Thessaly proper. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, one thing we have to bear in mind is that the boundaries that we might expect to be sharp and clear and definite 
because that's what they're like in our own our own society and our own experience of political geography actually aren't in ancient Greece. So if you go to the northern edge of Thessaly, you cross the river Peneus and then you ascend into the uplands of a region, um, Peribia, which is, um, it's, it's sort of, this is where we, we have to acknowledge the fuzzy edges of Thessaly as a, as a political um, entity because the, the area surrounding, the areas surrounding Thessaly were thought of as ethnically separate. So the Peribians were thought, thought of as a different ethnos from the Thessalians, but they're closely connected. They're participating in a lot of the same cults. Uh, they're minting very, very similar coins at various times. So the idea that you come to a kind of checkpoint and you have to show a passport and you know you're crossing the line is, is not the case at all. And even, you know, between Macedonia and Thessaly, to use kind of strict... Uh, political terms, there's a lot of traffic, there's a lot of movement. Uh, we know that artifacts are moving north, south between the two regions, and we can imagine also various kinds of travellers, soldiers, shepherds, and so on, crossing that, that kind of liminal zone between the two. So yes, um, Olympus is not in Thessaly, but A, it's visible, B, um, it, there's no clear and unambiguous demarcation between between the two regions. I wanted to find a way to naturally bring up centaurs in this conversation because I do recall you mentioning Thessaly in the last episode that we did together, Emma, and it's fairly natural now because you you brought it up uh, in the uh, in one of your early responses. So so in Greek mythology, centaurs live in Thessaly. Yes, Thessaly is one of two regions where other Greeks imagined them as residing. The other one is Arcadia in the central Peloponnese, and that's not accidental. On the most sort of basic level, these are two regions that um, outsiders could perceive as wild and primitive and therefore suitable habitats for centaurs. But um, I think one thing we, we touched on in the in the last um, podcast, um, Andrew, was the particular importance that we have to give to the central Chiron. And I think that he deserves another mention here because he's the, the he, to, to remind um, you and the listeners, Chiron is the centaur that sort of goes against the, the trend. Most centaurs are rowdy and, and unreliable, whereas Chiron is a, the epitome of moderation and wisdom. He's a, a tutor and nurse of heroes. So he rears, for example, the infant Achilles when Achilles, his mother Thetis, has given, um, given up this um, maternity lark with disgust and gone back to the sea. And he, he looks after the young Asclepios, uh, teaches him healing and so on and so on. And um, this, this brings us back to some of your earlier questions about what, what actually, what Thessaly really consists of as a region in the early period. Because if there's one thing that kind of glues together most, if not all, of the different parts of Thessaly in the archaic tradition, it is Chiron, because he's associated with so many heroes and so many heroic lineages. He's particularly, of course, central to the, to the Achilles story and the story of Peleus, Thetis and Achilles. But he's also got, got all these he's got a finger in lots of different pies. So if there's one sort of gluing agent in the early material, it is Chiron. And that's interesting because, of course, it's easy on the superficial level to write him off as a monster because he's this hybrid being and we associate hybridism with monstrosity. But actually, he's a, he's a culture hero. He's a sort of ancestor figure. 
absolutely fundamental um, in, in Thessalian mythology from the earliest time that we can actually recover a, you know, a picture of, of, of Thessalian mythology at all. You've mentioned Chiron. You mentioned earlier Achilles. Any other prominent mortal figures that are related to Thessaly, whether before the fifth century in 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 a in a earlier nomenclature is per perfectly fine. I get the sense we're both using um, the term Thessaly loosely in that it might have been referenced as something else earlier than the fifth fifth century. Um, is there another prominent mortal figure or two in Greek mythology that you want to bring up at this point? Yeah, um, your point about your point about uh, just in brackets for a moment. Your point about the the sort of rather loose way in which we're using the the name Thessaly is really important. I mean, we need a convenient way of designating the region, but it's true that as we've said, the name is not really in circulation in this early period. So it's really good to remind everyone of that. Yes, I think um, I'm going to stick to the early period. For a moment because I think that the fifth century really marks quite a big watershed in Thessalian mythology and self-perception so I'm going to sort of push that aside for a moment but regarding the early traditions I think the other figure that we've got to mention is Jason. Um, Jason of course is is one of the really famous heroes not just in among scholars but also in the sort of popular consciousness I mean no one needs a reminder of the Jason and the Argonauts movie and he keeps popping up in other sort of popular culture contexts as well so um, the, the case of Jason illustrates a, in a way a peculiarity of Thessaly that it is on the one hand reasonably obscure in kind of mainstream historiographic narratives and traditions. We don't hear about it very often. It's not a region that the general public tends to have heard of. It tends to be the subject of specialist study by um, nerds like me. But on the other hand, um, it supplies some of the heroes that are most famous inside and beyond um, classical scholarship, Achilles and Jason being the two obvious um, examples. And, you know, one really interesting question is, is why, why that is. And why come on to that but yeah Jason Jason's a really interesting case so as everybody will know he is um, associated particularly with Yolkos which is a settlement in the Bay of Pargasai not far from modern Volos um, the precise location um, in terms of modern geography of ancient Yolkos is much debated um, but one really intriguing possibility is that when ancient authors use the term Yolkos, they themselves don't actually have a very specific location in mind, but rather use it to designate a sort of cluster of settlements going back to the Bronze Age around um, this kind of coastal area in the Bay of Pargasai. Um, so that's the region that Jason's associated with, and it's from there that, of course, he launches his famous expedition to get the Golden Fleece on board the ship, the Argo. Um, so... Uh, on the one hand, uh, this gives a Thessalian hero a celebrity role that um, many will be familiar with. On the other hand, the challenge that we face is trying to anchor it to any sense of um, Thessalian agency in the myth-making process. And again, I think this was the theme we touched on in the Centaurs uh, episode, that often we're dealing with non-Thessalian sources. So we have the challenge of trying to 
work out where there were sure that the Thessalians themselves were actually telling this story. Jason in particular is interesting because he seems to have become sort of co-opted by non-Thessalian communities who were active in the archaic um, wave of colonies, colonizations in the Black Sea region, so particularly the people of Miletus, uh, when they wanted a hero who could kind of represent uh, and reflect their own exploration and colonization activities in the Black Sea, Jason was a useful figure for them. So we have to imagine some Milesian involvement in the elaboration of Jason's mythology. Um, and that takes us a very long way away from Thessaly itself. And um, one, one way of viewing this is that Thessaly supplies the kind of raw material for um, archaic storytelling and perhaps these traditions go back to the late Bronze Age in Thessaly when um, the area that we call Yolkos was really important, you know, it's a very important um, sort of zone for Mycenaean civilization and in the early Iron Age in fact some of that continues. So maybe we say that at that time Thessaly is generating stories like the Jason myth based on the kind of power struggles and the activities around that area. And then after that, um, these stories get sort of taken up by non-Thessalians who then run with them, elaborate them, and translate them into different contexts to suit their own, their own political and cultural purposes. Um, yeah, so Jason is the other big example that I would, I would mention while we're talking about this, this early material. Okay, thank you, Emma. So you'd mentioned the fifth century and we're speaking more broadly about antiquity as it relates to this topic today as an overview. So do you want to cover, um, expand on what your, what your comment was about the fifth century and then whether it comes up naturally in your response, um, what I'd like to do is work our way into the, the later than the fifth century as well. So if it's natural, feel free to, to um, share some pertinent points about uh, Thessaly in, in Greek mythology that relate to that period. Uh, and of course, if not, if not natural and not related to the fifth century, I'll, I'll ask the question. <laughs> right, yes, um, certainly. So, hmm, um, I'm, I said earlier that I thought that we see some really substantial changes in the fifth century in how the Thessalians particularly are using, are using mythology to present their own image and their own collective identity. And I think that's true. But it's also worth mentioning that part of the novelty of the fifth century is about new forms of evidence that become available at that time and actually change, change our perception. And we have to be a little bit cautious about assuming um, that new myths and cults are actually appearing. It may be the case that we're just seeing them in a new way and seeing them for the first time because we have new forms of evidence. The form of evidence that is most important in this regard is coinage. So in the, the first half of the, the fifth century, for the first time, we have Thessalian city-states, polis, minting silver coinage. And um, that offers an unparalleled opportunity to us to understand how Thessalian communities actually wanted to be seen. Uh, and um, this coinage is not restricted in its circulation to Thessaly itself, so we can think about how they wanted to be seen by other Greeks. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to approach the, the sort of fifth century material by mentioning a couple of 
images on, on this early coinage, which, which are important. Um, the first is that the, the pretty much, pretty much the earliest series of silver coinage minted by various, a number of Thessalian um, polis, shows um, a scene of a, a young man, normally with a rather sort of dashing short cloak flowing out behind him, wrestling with a bull. This is famous um, among anyone who, who works on Thessaly or Thessaly-related things. And most people, I think, um, correctly interpret it as a representation of an actual contest or ritual activity which took place in Thessaly, which we tend to call the Tower of Cathapsia. Um, even though this word actually isn't attested in the region itself very securely, and, um, but a better way of putting it might be a bull wrestling contest, which we think was done in honor of the god Poseidon. Um, so we have, for the first time, a glimpse of a cult practice, this particular agon, this contest, done in honor of Poseidon, um, and done by a significant number of Thessalian communities and probably at some sort of regional gathering at a sanctuary, although we're really lacking good early evidence for this. And certainly we don't have any archeological corroboration. We haven't found the place where this bull wrestling contest took place. So that's the first coin type, the bull wrestling motif, which is used by a number of city-states in the first half of the um, fifth century, probably in a period between 479 and 460 BC um, to start with, but we're not, you know, obviously the dating of coinage is quite, quite problematic. Um, the second uh, significant um, coin type shows, um, well, first of all, it bears the abbreviated ethnic of the Thessalians, um, Phi Epsilon Tau Alpha or Phi Epsilon Theta Alpha Feta or Fetha, which is the abbreviation of the, the dialect form of the, of the ethnic Fethalon, Fetalon. We have to remember that Thessaly is distinguished from other parts of Greece by having quite a strong epichoric or, or local dialect or a, a set of dialect tendencies. Um, and on, on this uh, coin type, we also have the representation of a major mythological incident, which is the birth of the first ever horse. So the coin actually shows a horse sort of charging headlong out of an opening in a rock. It's beautifully done. These early coins um, in the fifth century are beautifully cut. The die cutters are just extraordinarily talented. And um, we know from much later literary sources that this is the first horse whose name is normally Scyphios, and he's coming out of the rock created, brought into being by the god Poseidon, so we're up to Poseidon again. Um, where exactly this myth was localized in Thessaly is, is the subject of some really interesting debates, but it seems to have become part of the kind of palette or repertoire of regional mythology. Now, why, why, would, you, why would you use the idea of the first ever horse being created by Poseidon as a, a myth symbolizing the whole, the whole ethnos? Well, because, of course, the Thessalians were famous for their horses and their horsemanship. So if they're thinking about in terms of regional advertising, um, this is the perfect image because other, other Greeks would know how famous and, and how um, well thought of, how admired Thessalian horses were. So claiming to be the birthplace of the first horse ever is a really powerful piece of, of, of self-advertisement. Self 
Um, on the same coin type, we also find um, grains of, of cereal or corn. And this is an advertisement of the incredible um, agrarian arable profundity, uh, profusion, sorry, and fertility of Thessaly. So the horse and the grain together stand for the region's natural abundance and agricultural fertility and therefore wealth. So you can see how a sort of cluster of um, myth, cult, and natural resources is used to essentially manufacture a set of images that, that, that represent Thessaly. And this is so different from what we see before where the region is essentially in archaic epic, chopped up into different um, compartments according to genealogies or contingents in the Trojan War. For the first time, we have a kind of recipe for Thessaly as a whole. In a way, Thessaly is brought into being on, on this fifth century um, coinage. Okay. Thanks for sharing that, Emma. So when we go past these events chronologically that you shared there, um, is there, and, and we're getting into the later first millennium, those are the later part of the first millennium BCE, um, is there anything that shows up in the records that you want to touch on and make sure, and, and make sure that uh, it gets into this episode as it relates, of course, to Thessaly appearing in Greek mythology. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I think it's uh, it will, if we sort of charge forward, uh, if we jump in a time machine and move forward really rapidly to the Hellenistic period, so in particular the third century, the second, the, the two hundreds um, BC, um, we find ourselves in a really different world generally, don't we, in ancient Greece? I mean, after the conquest of Alexander, the 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 horizons of the Greek world shoot outwards and we have all, all this great sort of swathe of very multicultural territory included within, within the, 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 the banner um, of, of Greekness. Um, what kind of position does Thessaly have in that newly expanded and diversified world? Well, actually, you know, not unimportant. Um, in the Hellenistic period, we see these new sort of connections forged by communities, not, not necessarily particularly important communities across the Aegean connecting East Greece with the Greek mainland, Thessaly's part of that. Um, so, for example, uh, in the third century, the, the island of Kos off the Turkish coast is really promoting its cult of Asclepios, the healing god, and makes frequent reference to Thessaly as the, the homeland of Asclepios. Uh, forges various kinds of ritual connection with Thessaly and seems to cherish that way of linking back to the original cradle of Greek identity um, and, and in particular the, the myth historical identity of Greece. So for in particular for communities um, a little away from the sort of traditional geographical centre of Greece, Thessaly is a, a very good place to refer back to, to reassert your credentials as an important part of the Greek world. Kos does that, the community of Magnesia on the Meander in modern Turkey does that as well, claiming to have been settled, colonised by um, migrants from Thessaly originally back in, you know, the olden days. So. Thessaly doesn't drop out of the picture by any means, and in some ways you can say that it recovers a sense of its importance in the big interregional narratives that characterised archaic epic. We talked at the beginning about the fact that in epic, 
there's this great heroic network, this network of heroic genealogies spreading across the Greek world with Thessaly in a really important position within that. Well, that network is once again in operation in the Hellenistic period under new kind of socio-economic and political conditions. Um, and Thessaly is once again what we might call a sort of important node in this, in this network of mythological associations. So yeah, absolutely, doesn't disappear. Okay. Is there anything, Emma, that we haven't covered that you want to make sure gets in the episode today before we wrap up? Or is there, is there a point that you made and we discussed that you want to emphasize before wrapping up the conversation today? Yeah, I think um, I'd like to end by just sort of reasserting the importance of the local. My, my, my book um, deliberately looks at the regional level in Thessaly and, and looks at the rather, in a way, rather artificial construction of regional identity in Thessaly. But when we're talking about Thessalian mythology, actually, what we need to keep in mind is that individual Thessalian communities, be they city-states or indeed subgroups within city-states have their own myths. So you could write a book on the mythology of any substantial Thessalian city-state. There is this richly variegated texture of local traditions. And of course, as, as scholars have identified with regard to other regions as well, there's this fascinating kind of push-pull relationship between mythology on the regional level and the local level. So um, as soon as um, a regional charter myth is developed, for example, the idea that the Thessalians, um, that Thessaly was sort of founded and inaugurated by the hero Thessalos, you get other Thessalians in different parts of the region saying, well, actually, no, we're descended from someone else. We're descended from Lapis or, um, you know, a, a local hero. Uh, we have, um, you know, coinage in the fourth century BC particularly has these, to us, obscure local myths. And that would have been the important bit in terms of the actual everyday fabric of people's lives on the local level, most people would have been much more interested in their local nymph or their, you know, the, 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 the little myths associated with their town than they would have been with the kind of macro nar narratives that I'm dealing with. So I'm dealing with the kind of political level and, and in a way, the artificial level. Um, so I, I would say that there's a lot of, you know, although I like the level I'm working on, there's a lot of scope for further inquiry into this kind of sub-regional level to try to uh, rather than kind of uh, generalizing Thessaly, try to get a sense of the incredible variety and nuance that you have going on between its different constituent communities. When we chatted about centaurs in Greek mythology, I enjoyed that conversation. Today we chatted about Thessaly appearing in Greek mythology and I enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for coming on the show again, Emma. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. So what I'll do, everybody, is provide a link to that previous podcast episode with Professor Aston on the show when we spoke about centaurs in Greek mythology. I'll also link to Professor Aston's monograph, Mixanthropoi, Animal-Human Hybrid Deities in Greek Religion. So I'll provide links to both those items in the show notes that are associated to this episode at IthacaBound.com. Emma and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.